You are about to listen to Season 2, Episode 9 of the Meet Mediocrity Podcast. We just finished a three-part miniseries with my niece, Alex Arroyo. During that podcast series, we discussed ways to stay socially well in a socially distant manner. It was a lot of fun for me, and I'm assuming it was a lot of fun for a lot of you because I've gotten tons of amazing feedback. In today's episode, the first episode following the miniseries, I am joined by my guest, Merritt Hartblay. Merritt and I discuss his book entitled Lost Innocence, sorry, Lost Innocence, My Journey from Addiction to Recovery, and we discuss the events that make up that book. With that as an intro, let's get started. This is your host, Mediocre Mitch, and welcome to the Meet Mediocrity Podcast, Season 2, Episode 9. My guest, Merritt Hartplay, has been clean and sober for over 10 years, but sobriety did not occur until long and hard lifetime of struggle with alcohol and drugs. Let me quickly cut to the punchline, because I think this punchline will make you definitely want to listen to the conversation. Here's the punchline. First, be compassionate to your neighbor. You have no idea what they might be going through. Second, never give up on yourself. You can turn a bad situation, a really bad situation, into a good one if you just keep trying. And third, it's never too late to reinvent yourself. Even in his 50s and 60s, Merritt has turned his life around. He's found his his passion and his purpose, and he's providing much-needed care and counseling to others suffering suffering and struggling with addiction. My conversation with Merritt covers a lot of ground, so in order to help you easily follow along, I've summarized his conversation into three sections. Section one. That's where we discuss Merritt's childhood. He describes how he grew up in a Jewish household where there was a lot of heavy drinking. He even jokes about the fact that heavy drinking is not a typical Jewish trait, maybe eating too much or talking too much, but not typically drinking too much. Anyway, in section one, Merritt describes his exposure to his family of heavy drinkers. Section two of the discussion is where we discuss the six critical years when Merritt hit rock bottom. It started with the bankruptcy of his employer, Worldcom, which coincided with the start of the Iraq War, and it culminated with Merritt hitting rock bottom, seeking help, and finding help. And then Merritt and I kind of move to the final section of our conversation, where we discuss how Merritt found his way back to school to become a drug counselor, how he went back to Binghamton University, to earn his master's in social work. And it ends with today, where Merritt helps addicts on a daily basis. He has truly found his calling. Once again, Merritt's book, Merritt's book is called Lost Innocence, My Journey from Addiction to Recovery. And with that, here's my conversation with Merritt Harpley. 
So Merritt, thanks for being with me today. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Mitch. So Merritt, I first of all, let me let me set the stage here. Uh, Merritt, you and I go back to probably a solid 15 years or so and our kids maybe even more than that maybe oh, 20 years even um, more than that yeah maybe yeah uh, middle school, i would say like elementary elementary school yeah so we we right. have we both have sons who are the same age and who have been right. friendly throughout the years um yeah. and here's the interesting story so you know, Merritt, you and I were very active in our kids' uh, little league teams, which was about fifteen right. between 15, fifteen years ago. And um, right. you and I used to interact every day. You have a son named Trevor, who I loved and spent a lot of time with in little league. And um, yeah. you were like one of the dads. And um, I was sitting <laughs> there on Facebook um, probably a couple of weeks ago, and you said, "And I lost track of you." The kids, you know finished high school. Right. We, we lost touch with each other. I, I saw on Facebook that you were publishing a book. I'm like, Oh, interesting. What's the book about? He says, my journey from addiction to recovery, lost innocence by Merritt Harpley. I'm like, Holy shit, this is a big deal. <laughs> and um, so yeah. I, so the first thing I did was, was order the book. And the next thing I did is reach out to you and, and Merritt, like I, I'm, a amazed at your story. B, I feel a little bit terrible how you and I, in the middle <laughs> of coaching Little League, you were really struggling. So, um, yeah, why don't we why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about your story, and we'll take it from there. Okay, so, um, God, well, I'll um I'll be sober twelve years in September. So you know, twelve years ago, my life really uh, took a change, but. Um, as I talk about in the book, you know, um, I struggled for a long time. Um, you know, both of my parents were big drinkers. My family, you know, who would have think that uh, Jewish families would drink? But, you know, aunts and uncles, they all drank. And it was, I had 11 first cousins. And so, you know, alcohol was always around me. And um, so, as, so as a young kid, I, I really didn't like what alcohol did. And my father, you know, drive like a crazy person. And, it, you know, and they fought me, him and my mom fought a lot. So... I swore off alcohol, you know, I escaped. So I pretty much escaped into the schoolyards, you know, playing football, baseball, basketball, whatever I could play. And, you know, I'd come home and it was too dark to see. And, you know, I escaped out of it. You know, I went to college on a track scholarship to Binghamton and I got away from everything. But when I graduated from college, you know, I, I didn't have my first drink until maybe the beginning of my, maybe the end of my junior year in college. That's that was the late. first. That's yeah. late. I That's mean, I, I had my first drink, you know, as a freshman in high school. So yeah, you were turned should, off by it. That's probably what kept you away from it. Yeah, I probably should have started in elementary school, you know, and gone right to rehab from the crib. <laughs> <laughs> I should have went from right to the crib to rehab. <laughs> but um, but um, so I kind of like, you know, I I got out of college and I came back to New York. This was uh, 76. And, you know, New York City in the 70s was crazy. So the best way I can describe it, Mitch, was that for 30 years, I was comfortably numb. Yeah. And wow. what, as I look back now, and as I talked to you before we started the show, um, one of the things that I've learned in sobriety is that I spent, you know, I got sober when I was 54. So I'd like to say that I spent 30 years of my life living my life the way other people expected me to live. You know, I lived my life the way I thought other people wanted me to live. And you know what? 
that, as I look back now, that's almost like a death sentence that you impose on yourself, you know, because well, it, sounds was, like, it sounds like that, that, you know, a combination of growing up with drinking parents yeah, and, and then living a life that others were expecting, or you thought others expected of you that that's going to drive you to drink because that's so much pressure on yourself. It is. And it is. You, I mean, you obviously felt it. I mean, I, rem- I talk about it in the book. I remember I got by Mitchell at this place called the Regency House on Jamaica Avenue where I grew up in, in Jamaica. And I remember them carrying my father out of the reception hall, you know, literally carrying him out because he had passed out from drinking. So, you know, as I talk about, I realize, you know, as I, you know, the book. So I don't know where to start anyway. So I was comfortably numb for 30 years. You know, I got married my first time because everybody was getting married and there was a lot of pressure to get married. And we belonged to a beach club in Atlantic beach. And my parents had these friends with the cabana next door and they had a girl my age and we started talking and I don't know what happened, Mitch, one thing led to another. And now all of a sudden I'm in temple, this temple in Lawrence, you know, with 300 people getting married. I don't know how that happened, you know, <laughs> and, and everybody's upstairs partying and I'm downstairs in the Hebrew school room doing cocaine. I'm thinking, is this the way to start a marriage? Probably not. Probably not. But you know, it, it's really, you were, you were already, you were already down, down the wrong path at that I was. point. And you know what? It's funny because what's really interesting is another, not to go back and forth, but I've asked really close friends of mine that I've been friends with for like, you know, 40 years, you know, 30, 40 years. How come nobody ever dragged me off to the side and said, dude, you have a problem. And their answer was because we always had such a good time with you. We didn't really think you had a bad problem. So we enjoyed being around you. Well, let's, let's make this personal. So I'm going to, I'm going to think about, um, Let's say um, around 2003-ish, right? right. So 2003-ish okay. is is when our kids were were on Little League together. Right. You and I saw each other every week for several years. Right. And um, 2003-ish, you were you were an addict, and right. I had no idea you were an addict. I, I right. actually I like Merritt's a great guy. He's a caring father. His son is a great kid. I love Trevor. And here you were putting on a face to the rest of the parents, and you were really struggling in life. I was. So take me back to that time, um, okay. early 2000s. What was going on in your life? How did that take you up to the to your breaking point? Tell me that. Well, I'll tell you. Yeah, you'll understand because you come from, from the financial world, right? Mm-hmm. So I think you'll understand what happened to me. So what happened to me was... I was working for a company called WorldCom. You remember yep. WorldCom? I do. So I was a division sales manager making a six-figure salary. The way WorldCom rewarded management was with stock options. Yes. I actually worked for, a com- I worked for a company called MFS, and we got bought by WorldCom. Bernie Ebers bought Sprint. I mean, he bought MFS. I actually he- know about MFS. So, yep, I'm with you. So I was at MFS. We got bought by WorldCom. So now, you know, I'm getting all these stock options. My, uh, my senior VP, you know, lived on Shelter Island. So there were days where instead of me going out on sales calls, he would take me out to Shelter Island. Let's go boating for the day, buy a case of wine, go on the boat. And he was, a, he had an actually refrigerator in his office and drinking scotch at like nine o'clock in the morning. But so in those days, you know what? I, I, did, I always excelled at sales, mm-hmm. but if you know sales, there's a lot of pressure, you know, you're only as good as your last sale and your funnel and your pipeline. And so 
a lot of pressure and yeah. you're drinking all the time. And, we, and I was always one of the top 10 salespeople in the country, you know, going on these sales trips. So anyway, things were going great. And then I had like 50,000 stock options at the strike price of 12 and stock was in the 60s. And so you were, sitting, you were sitting on a few million dollars there. 30 days away from 100% vesting. Oh, my God. And Kathy and I sat in front of the TV set, and literally, she had a bottle of Crown Royal. I had a bottle of Cuervo tequila, and literally overnight, the company went from Chapter 7 to Chapter 11. The stock went to zero, lost everything. And I invested 100% of my savings and my life back into the company, so I lost everything. I went from a six-figure salary to having Trevor in his stroller taking him to Hempstead to think about filing for Medicaid and Medicare and it's food stamps and whatever I could right. do. And, and I turned around and said, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'll figure it out. But that's really when my drinking took off because my wife at the time, she blamed it all on me. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Bernie Ebers. It was me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what to do, man. Cause I was always good at juggling all the balls, you know, paying the bills, doing this, doing that. <clears throat> but that just, everything fell apart. And if you remember, it was right around when the war broke out in Iraq. I, you know what I did? I made, you know, those guys you would see in the streets selling suits, they would wear those cardboard things on them and they'd walk up and down the streets with these <laughs> cardboard things, you know? Yeah. So I took big pieces of cardboard paper and I made this huge sign that you could wear in front and back. And on the front said, casualty of the WorldCom layoffs, 30 year telecom professional looking for work, resumes available. And I walked up and down in front of MSNBC Studios on 6th Avenue for about two weeks. And then one day a producer came out and said, asked what was going on. I told her, she says, I think this could be a story. The next day the war broke out in Iraq and I wasn't a story anymore. Wow. So thinking about this, so WorldCom bankruptcy was in 2002, I believe. It was. It was. So if the WorldCom bankruptcy is in 2002, you're right. That was right around, right around when we went to a war in Iraq. Um, right. And, and you and, 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 and our kids were you right. know, starting to play Little League after that. So like I was hanging out with right. you. You were sitting there basically unemployed and drinking and drinking yourself, you know, into from, from first thing in the morning. And like right. you put on, you put on a happy face when you got to the little league field. How did you do that? You, were, I don't well, know. You know. I have no idea how you did that. Yeah. I mean, the thing was that, you know, Trevor, you know, he's my best friend. Yep. You know, I had to go in for a colonoscopy yesterday. Stay at the hospital with me. You know, he's come to all my anniversaries. He gets all of my coins from year one. Yep. He's been there for me. But when I, when I was living at home and I decided one day that I had to leave the house, my marriage had been over for, I, was, I must have been sleeping on the couch for almost a year. My marriage was over and I was trying to stay there. And then I realized if I don't get out now and get help for myself, it's gonna, uh, this won't be good to anybody. And I remember walking up into Trevor's room, I talk about it in the book, and I sat down with him and I said, Trevor, um, your, dad's got a, uh, he's, your dad's got an alcohol and a drug problem. And I have to get help. I'm going to have to leave the house, you know? So he thought I abandoned him. It was tough for about six months. Remind yeah. me, Merritt, what year was it that you actually went for help? I went for help in 2008. 
So in 2008, so you you really from the from the day that that Worldcom went bankrupt to the day that you decided that's, to do something to get help. That's six years of of really going from from bad to rock bottom. Yeah, you know, I I it was the year it was the era of the dot coms. So I kept trying to reinvent myself, get a job here, get a job there, and it just wasn't happening it just wasn't happening and so you know i talk about in the book there's a there's a bar that i used to hang out at in the city i was just talking to the guy today used to own that bar and i knew that place for like 20 years and so i would put on a suit to give the impression that i was going into the city for a job interview and i would go into the city and drink and play darts all day and night you know because i was trying to put on that impression that things are okay i mean my wife at the time was working for a really good company. So, you know, we had, thank God we had that. But I got to tell you something, man. I almost wish that she had just thrown me out of the fucking house and said, you know, you have a problem. But she never, ever, ever said that ever to me, which is like, you know, but we both drank a lot together. I mean, we met in Texas and, you know, we were big parties, you know, yeah. so we always party together. So, you know, I think sometimes people would rather not look at you because then they might have to look at themselves. So anyway, that's that's very true. So six years, it was kind of like a dark hole. I mean, I tried my best to juggle all the balls to try to keep the family afloat, but that WorldCom thing, I mean, that just, I don't really, you know, I never really, I never really, I'm just telling you now it's 66. You know, I love the work, you know, I went back to school, you know, to become a drug counselor. And then I Went back to school in 2013 to get my master's, which was a three and a half year program. So I reinvented myself, but I lost everything. You know, they say that when you're drinking and drugging, you give up everything in your life for that one thing. But when you give up that one thing, you get so much back. So for those six years, I struggled and I made some mistakes. I shifted my dick. You know, I got involved in a relationship I shouldn't have gotten involved in. I was really trying to pull together. But you know what? I was taking a Trevor to Schreiber every morning coming home from school, from picking up, dropping him off at Schreiber. And by eight o'clock in the morning, you know, I'm watching like Little House on the Prairie on my fourth drink, like crying in front of the TV set. You know, I, I talk about in the book, it was the worst feeling ever that I hope nobody ever has, not wanting to live and not wanting to die. Because I didn't want to leave my, I didn't want to leave my son without a father. And I had suicidal thoughts, but I, I think I just scared myself because I wasn't going to hurt myself. You know, I, I, but it was like, that final day, you know, and I have a, vi- a very, very, you know, all the years of drinking and drugging, I have a very vivid memory. So I remember everything. And that last day was very clear to me. I brought, tr- I came back from Schreiber and I sat down and I was done. I wrote out my last will and testament <clears throat> and uh, I emailed it to my good friend, Peter, who's, he's an attorney. He's my closest friend today. And to my copy to my sister, and I was done. I didn't know what to do. And, and literally now being brought up Jewish, yep. you know, I think that I never really had a relationship with God. You know, I was dragged to temple kicking and screaming. Like, if you don't do this, God's going to do that. God's a punishing God. You know, after I got by mitzvah, I never saw the inside of a temple and sex on twice a year. Right. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But that last day, it was the first day that I ever really prayed to God for help. I said, please help me because I don't know what to do. And Peter called me frantically. What are you talking about? What's this letter? And my sister called me crying. And I said, Peter, um, 
I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. I need help. And I drove up to his office in Mamaroneck. I hadn't showered in months. And that was really the first day of the beginning of a new life. You know, I really, I gave up. You know, I gave up. I surrendered to win. I didn't surrender to lose. I surrendered to win. And I gave up. And I said, at least for me, I said, God, whatever you need me to do, I will do. And I can tell you that where I am today has been, I'm in the most amazing place in my life. So tell me, so you went to rehab, you got yourself sober. And, Actually, and I, didn't, I didn't go to rehab. You know what? I didn't go to rehab. What happened was I- Did you just stop cold turkey? I stopped cold turkey. I, um, I went up to see Peter. Then I called my primary care doctor who was in poor Washington. And I said, I need to come and see you today. I have a, a drinking problem. He goes, yeah, I know. I'm just waiting for the call. It's been years, but I'm waiting for the call. So I went to see him mm -hmm. and I said, you know, uh, doc, I'm in, I'm in bad shape. You know, I need to stop drinking and uh, drugging and, uh, you know, and my head is messed up too. She said, well, you know, you need to find a, psych a psychiatrist, a therapist. And so I got the website for all the insur for my insurance company. And I started calling psychiatrists one after the other, after the other can't see you can see you in 30 days can't see you and i said you know what i need to see somebody today because i was really like at right it. right and the last therapist that i called she says i can't see you but there's a program at north shore hospital called DTEC, drug treatment education center they run an amazing outpatient program call them up so my doctor said okay i'm going to put you on selexa to calm you down mm -hmm. and go to them so i made an appointment to go to the hospital but then I went back home and I only knew about AA from this old movie with Michael Keaton called uh, Clean and Sober. Yes, I movie. know the movie. Yep. Great movie. So I went on Trevor's computer and I Googled AA and I found the intergroup in Nassau County and I called them up and they said, there's a meeting in a half hour at Temple Judea in Manhasset in Albertson Go. And I went to Temple Judea and I, and I sat there and I just sat there. I was crying and I just sat there. So... The next morning, I went back to Temple Judea. There were two meetings there, 11. There was like a 12 o'clock and a 1 There was an 11 o'clock and a 12 o'clock. And then in Garden City, there was another meeting at 1 o'clock and at 2 o'clock. And then I was going to two meetings. So I was going to like six meetings a day. Wow. And I, I said, you know, I'll do whatever I have to do. I, at that point in time, moved out of the house. You know, I got an apartment. And um, I was just, I dove into the middle of sobriety and I never looked back. So how did that, how did that, you know, AA experience convert itself into you going back to school, you know, be, becoming, uh, becoming a yeah. therapist in your own right? Like, tell me how, how this evolved because you're in an amazing right. place right now. So this is crazy. So Trevor was like um, co-captain of the football team at Schreiber. Mm -hmm. And he came to me one day and he goes, dad, my friends that are playing football and they're not taking drugs seriously. And he had two of his friends who had lived in Sands Point and I can't remember who they were, but their father got in a brand new car. They took it out on middle neck road one night doing like about 80 miles an hour. They slammed into a tree and one of them became uh, paralyzed for life, you know? And so Trevor said, dad, can you come into the school and talk to my students? Can you talk to the students about alcohol and drugs and, I, you know, was newly sober. So I this said, is, this isn't when Trevor was in high school. Yeah. This is when he was in high school. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I went in and I talked to the principal Harvey. I talked to Ms. Kalinowski who taught the health, health 
classes and they agreed to let me come in. So I started going into the high school like once every couple of weeks to all the health classes to talk about my story and to talk about alcohol and drugs and sobriety. So now you got to imagine Trevor was excused from his class. He would sit right next to me and there'd be 30 students in front of me that I all knew because I like between coaching PYA, I mean, I knew all these kids yep. and it was like deer in the headlights. They started writing letters to Ms. Kalinowski, which she gave to me, which I still have. Mr. Hartblay, I'm so glad you came to talk to us. I've been smoking pot since I'm 10 years old. I've been drinking since I'm 15. I'm taking this pill. I think my father's an alcoholic. What should I do? And I started, you know, working with these kids. I took, I took one kid to an Alateen meeting, one kid's mom I met, and I took her to an Alanon meeting. So all these letters started coming in. So I was at an A meeting in Manhasset one morning, and I was running this particular meeting, and I shared some of the letters. And this lady came up to me after the meeting and she goes, Merritt, you need to do more. You need to do more. And I was out of work. I wasn't sure. You know, I prayed on it. I talked to my sponsor. And then I found out that New York State considers alcohol and drugs to be a disability. And there was this program called Outreach that had a chemical dependency counselor program. So I went to this thing before that called VESID, which is now Access VR. It's like uh, VESID was vocational and educational services for individuals with disability. Mm -hmm. I interviewed with them. I said I wanted to become a drug counselor and they paid for the whole thing. I got a scholarship. I went to this outreach school in Richmond Hill. It was five days a week. It was like six, seven hours a day, 10 month program. And I went to the program while, I think halfway through the program, I started interning at a place called Seafield in Manhasset and in uh, Mineola. And then uh, I graduated with honors. I was then offered a part-time job at Seafield. So now I'm, I'm running groups. I'm working with people in addiction. I'm doing that like 20 hours a week and I needed to find another job. So a good friend of mine from Temple Judea who was a drug counselor said, you need to talk to my boss. I called up her boss the next day. I met with her. She offered me a part-time job. So I was working 20 hours a week in Mineola, 20 hours a week in Hop Hog. And it was amazing. I mean, I finally said, God, you know, I believed that he had taken me where I needed to be now, it's going to sound a little bit corny, maybe not, but I'm very spiritual. So I believe that, you know, I finally started listening. For me, I started listening to God and I said, you put me wherever you need me to go to do your work. And, I, and that's when I really jumped into the drug counseling. I, was, I loved it, helping people save their lives. And, after, and then what happened was um, <clears throat> KPC offered me a full-time job, Claudia. And I went to work for a full-time in 2011. And I was there for about two years. And then what happened was um, I decided that one day I wanted to do therapy, private therapy. And I said, I've got to get a higher degree. And I went to school in Binghamton undergrad. And I was very involved with the school because I'm an alumni athlete. And I do a lot of work at the university. Mm-hmm. And I found out that they had a master's program in social work. So I was going up to the school for an alumni weekend. And I called up the dean of the social work school and I said, you know, I'm coming up for an alumni weekend meeting. Can I stop by and talk to you? He said, sure. I drove on Friday. I had a meeting at 11 or 12 o'clock. I went to the grad school about two o'clock in the afternoon. I met with her. We started playing Jewish geography. She grew up in Jamaica, not too far from me. We started talking. I said, you know, my son is a student here and uh, I really want to come back here to get my master's. And she said, well, come with me. And she took me down the hall and introduced me to the dean of admissions. And I talked to him and I told him my whole story. 
And he said, well, this was like probably like in, I want to say January, February, March. He goes, you know, we're not taking any more students for the fall, but I would encourage you to apply. You know, I said, well, you know, I can't come up here two days a week. I have to move up here. He goes, well, I'll give you the list of some addiction treatment centers in Binghamton. Why don't you just give them a call? Mm -hmm. So I went home. I started filling out the application for grad school. I started sending out my resume. There was an addiction called the Addiction Center of Broome County in Binghamton. Sent them my resume. A week later, I get a phone call from the director of the program. We're looking to hire somebody in June. When can you come see me? Wow. I said, well, I don't know. How's like tomorrow? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so I took a sick day and I drove up to Binghamton and I met with her. And, and it was a great interview. And, uh, you know, she said, we'll be in touch with you. On the way back, I stopped at the grad school. I saw the dean and, the, and the, I saw the dean of the program and I t filled in what was going on. She goes, good luck. I came back home, finished up my application. I got a bunch of uh, professors of mine from Binghamton that was still there, my track coach to write recommendations. And I let it go. You know, I, I just let it go. And, you know, think that when you are very spiritual and you believe that, and for me, God is a higher power that when you, when you turn your life over and realize that when you stop being God, when you give up being God and let, let God be God, things will work out the way they're supposed to. Not in your time. I always say things always happen, you know, not in your time, but in God's time. And I just let it go. And two weeks later, I get a letter accepting me to grad school for the fall. And the next day I got the job offer letter. <laughs> so I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I took a deep breath and now I said, how am I going to pay for this? You know, I'm barely right. scraping two nickels together. Right. So I said, well, listen, Tre Trevor, we took, we, we applied, you know, Trevor was on FAFSA. Let me fill out FAFSA application. Right. And then I fill out the FAFSA application. I drove up to Binghamton within about a, three weeks. I found an apartment. And then I got full FAFSA, packed up the U-Haul, and moved to Binghamton. You know, so I moved to Binghamton in June. I started working. I was working 40 hours a week. I started grad school in August. So I was going to school two nights a week, doing 15 hours a week of field work and then working 40 hours a week. And I loved every minute of it. I was like, all the students, they still today, all the alumni called me Uncle Merritt. Cause I was like 54 years old and these guys were like in their twenties and thirties. Right. I was like soaking it up. I, I always believe that when you go to, when you go to undergrad, you can't really figure it out. Some people never figure it out unless you know you want to be a dentist or a doctor or a lawyer, but you don't really figure it out. Agreed. When you go to grad school, you have a passion, you know what you want That's to do. That's correct. Yep. And I soaked it all up. So three, so three years later, I graduated with my master's in social work with honors and, uh, you know, came back to Long Island and, uh, you know, that's where I am today. Crazy stuff, Mitch. Got to tell you. Well, <laughs> so Merritt, this is a great story. So let, let me, let me kind of summarize. First of all, let me, okay. let me say it again. And I'm going to put um, a link to the um, book in, or the, the Amazon um, post for the book. Oh, thank um, you. Lost Innocence. My Journey from Addiction right. to Recovery by Merritt Hartblay. I read the book and, and you know, it's, it's, it's a personal story. You, you bared your heart to the reader. Um, but in reading this story and having this conversation with you, Merritt, I took away three important lessons. The first is be compassionate. You just don't know what that person you're dealing with is really going through. And they could Correct. be... 
they could be putting on a happy face, but they could be dealing with some terrible stuff and you were dealing with some terrible stuff. And, you know, I, I was looking at you on a weekly basis and didn't <laughs> know it. Um, hopefully I wasn't a jerk, um, but be compassionate. No, That's the first no. thing. Um, the second thing is, is never give up on yourself. It's, you know, Merritt, no. you know, you, you actually, not only did you save your life, but, you saved in many ways Trevor's life. You saved yeah. the lives of people you're counseling. So so yeah. never give up on yourself because you don't know the impact you can have on others at any point. This is true. And the third lesson is it's never too late to reinvent yourself. I mean, to find, no, never. To find yeah. something that you are passionate about that makes you want to jump out of bed in the morning and go do it. Like there is no, there's nothing greater than that. And so, Nothing. you know, it's Nothing. never too late to reinvent yourself because Merritt, you've completely reinvented yourself. Well, you know, what's crazy. I, you know, what's really crazy is that I, you know, when I got sober 12 years ago, I also got really into nutrition. You know, I've run six New York city marathons. I, you know, I, my nutrition, you know, at 66 years old, you know, I went for my colonoscopy last night. The doctor goes, I'll see you in 10 years, but um, I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life. And so, you know, it's never too soon you know, to really become the person you were always meant to be. It's a fantastic lesson. So Merritt, thank you again for being with me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. And I'm glad we reconnected. We're going to, once this virus oh, yeah. allows oh, yeah. us, we're going to go out and grab a sandwich together. Oh, I look forward to it. I, I, you know what? I, I think that, you know, I'm, nothing happens by mistake. And I'm really glad that we were brought back together. I look forward to it. Excellent. Take care, Merritt. All I can say is, wow, Merritt is a brave man, and he has an amazing story. Personally, I'm inspired. The concept of personal realization, action, and reinvention is something I think about and try to do myself on a regular basis. For Merritt, it was a matter of life and death. He turned his life around from rock bottom to a life where he is helping and inspiring many others in need. Once again, please check out Merritt's book, Lost Innocence, My Journey from Addiction to Recovery. It can be found on Amazon. It's under 100 pages. It's a quick, easy, and powerful read. So finally, if you're enjoying the Meet Mediocrity podcast, please tell your friends, share it on social media, Join our community on Instagram and Facebook. And until next time, please stay safe and healthy. Be happy, keep smiling, and stay well. Take care, everyone.